Let's pray. God, would you reveal yourself to us that we would know who you truly are, not who we think you are, who we want you to be, but who you truly are. And so would you awaken souls this morning that are gathered here, that are watching online. Lord, would you show yourself to us that we would not miss you, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. One of the things I enjoy doing is I love reading and I love reading stories from the whole gamut of things. I think it just makes us better people when we see different sides. And one of the things I like reading about are people who don't believe in God and some of the questions that they have. And one of the ones that certainly has been popular over the last several months has been, well, where is God in the midst of all of the suffering with the COVID and all that's going on? And where is God in the midst of all the rioting and, and all the disunity that's going on in our own country here? And where is God in the midst of this crisis. That seems to be a recurring theme from people that don't know who God is. And really what's behind that is like, why isn't God stepping in? Like what else has to happen for God to just intervene and say enough is enough? Like is, is God just sitting back and not paying attention to what's going on in the world? Is it just like a top that he's spun and he sits back and just watches everything unfold? Or, or is God actively involved in the world? God, do you really see what's going on? On. God, do you ever get angry with what is going on in the world? I don't know how you feel about anger. Maybe you grew up in a family where anger wasn't allowed, and so you learned very quickly that the best thing to do is just suppress it and push it down. But what you realize, if you've gone through life doing that for a period of time, that is not the most helpful way to go through life, because eventually it comes out in ways that are sometimes just horrendous. And so as you think about life and the way you live through life, anger has never been the problem. In fact, the Bible says in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't get angry. It says just don't sin in your anger, which leads to an opening question. Now, our board of directors have heard this one before. We did this as a devotion in December. I was leading them through so they don't get to answer this question. But I'd like you to wrestle with this. And when was the first time we know that God was angry? And, and so if you're tuned in a little bit, you might be thinking like, okay, well, let me think. Like, I, I bet like the Garden of Eden, that must have made God, he made perfect paradise and, and they ruined it. The one rule, they only had one rule to follow and Adam and Eve blew it. He must have been angry in that moment. Well, he might have been, but the Bible doesn't record that he was angry in that moment. Oh, well, how about Cain and Abel? Certainly when Cain kills Abel, the first murder in the Bible, that certainly must have been one of those where God was just angry and frustrated. Certainly that, no, that wasn't it. Well, how about Noah and the flood where the Bible says that every inclination of man's heart was evil all of the time? Maybe that was the instance that God was angry before he sent the flood to annihilate the earth. No, the Bible didn't say he was angry. The first time we see God being angry in the Bible is with Moses. You're like, wait, wait, Moses? Like 10 Commandments, Moses? <laughs> Parting the Red Sea, Moses? Leading them through the wilderness uh, to the promised land, Moses? That one, really? <laughs> what did Moses do to make God so angry? Well, God had called Moses, and he said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and ask him to let my people go. 
Moses had a few things he wanted to ask God before he took on that assignment. I don't want to share these. You can read these in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. He has several excuses that he uses. The first one is, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And I imagine God going, um, you're the one I saved out of the sea. You were in a basket. I don't know. You didn't remember. You were just a baby in that moment. But then I saved you and brought you to Pharaoh's household. You were raised up in Pharaoh's house. Who better to go to Pharaoh than somebody who knows Pharaoh's household? But that wasn't enough for Moses. Uh, he goes on with a second excuse. What if they ask, what's your name? I can't just show up and say, well, God told me. Like, who am I supposed to say told me to go? And this is where we get the phrase, I am. Tell them I am sent me, Yahweh, the very name of God. Well, evidently that wasn't enough from, uh, for Moses because he goes on to say, well, what if they don't believe me or what if they don't listen to me? What do you got in your hand? I got a staff. Throw it down. Oh, wow, look at it. It became a snake. Pick it up. Really? You want me to pick that? Pick it up. Oh, wow, look at it. It's a staff. Again, I'm going to be with you, Moses, in the midst of that, so don't worry about all of those kind of things. Okay. okay. God, I've, I've never really been very eloquent. I'm not really good with my words. I don't really think I'm the right guy to go and do this. I'll send Aaron to go with you. Aaron's very good with words. And then Moses is running out of excuses, and so he pulls this one. Oh, Lord, please just send somebody else to do it. That sounds like a lot of work, and it's ripe for failure. I'm not sure I really want to do this after. Can't you just please send somebody else? And, and if you can put yourself in God's shoes in this moment, you've called Moses. You, you saved him as a baby in the Nile River, and you brought him up in Pharaoh's household, and you've taught him and put up with him for 80 years at this point, and now you've called him to lead people out of Egypt, and he comes with you after excuse after excuse after excuse. You can almost hear sort of the, the little kid whining, can't you? If, for those of you who are parents, you, you know that when you've asked them to do something, like, oh, I don't really, I don't, what do I, and finally after like the fit, just do it. Like you've lost it at that moment and you're just like, I'm done with you. Just go and do it before I do something that I might regret later and certainly you're gonna be paying for for the rest of your life. Just go and do what I told you to do. You can feel the frustration and certainly God must have been frustrated and certainly he was because here's what he says. Then the Lord's anger, the first instance of God's anger, burned against Moses and he said, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> Man, the first time God if that didn't get angry in the garden, didn't get angry with Cain and Abel, didn't get angry with Noah in the flood. Uh, man, certainly this is going to be good. I can't wait to see what God is going to dish out on Moses and what is going to entail in his life. And so we go on to see what he said. He said, uh, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if your mouth, um, it was your mouth, and if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. I'm not a psychologist, but that doesn't sound a lot like anger. <laughs> That's not what I would expect when the Lord's anger burned against Moses. That sounds very rational. That sounds very calm. That sounds very peaceful. That doesn't sound very angry. 
Well, the reason it doesn't sound very angry is because a characteristic of God. And we've used this passage from um, Exodus chapter 34 uh, for this series. This is the third week in the series where we just take one aspect of God and expound on that a little bit. And today we're taking a look at Exodus. And so take a look at Exodus, there you go, 34 verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is God's description of himself, which is important to go back to, because I mentioned in the very beginning in our prayer is we can make God into anything we want him to be. It's important to go back and look at what God says he is, and this is what he says, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And so we go backwards a couple of chapters before God says who he is. We go back to our text that John read just a moment ago and take a look at verse seven. The Lord said to Moses, so this is after um, God got angry with Moses and went through that. So this is now they're out into the wilderness. The Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. I I love that little switcheroo. This is like that parent trick. You know, did you see what your kid did? I thought it was our kid. Like, I'm not, this is your part of the family. This is where they pick up that habit from. This is your kid that did this. And here's God turning this over. These these are your people, Moses, that you brought out of Egypt. And Moses like, I didn't even want to (laughs) go. Man, I told you to send somebody else. I didn't want to do this job. What are you blaming me for? It's not my fault these people are rebellious and I walk away from them for a few days and they, chaos ensues and violence ensues and they're worshiping other gods. And he goes on, skip down to verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and so that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. That sounds more like anger. Man, leave me alone. Man, I, I just, I need to be alone. Like, I'm gonna blow my top. I just, get away from me. And I'm just gonna annihilate these people. So leave me alone, because I don't want you to see what I'm about to do to these people, Moses. Man, I'm gonna do what I did before with the flood and just annihilate everybody from the face of the earth again, and I'm gonna make you into a great nation. Like, I started over with Noah. Like, I started over with Abraham. I'm gonna start over with you, Moses. And if we can be honest for just a moment, uh, at least I'll be honest with you, I don't like this part of God. (laughs) Because this is the one that gets in the way for a lot of people knowing who God really is. Like, well, what about God when he destroyed? What about God when he sent the flood? What about God when he just destroyed a whole city? What about Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire coming down? What about, what about, what about... I don't like this side either, but we have to wrestle with this because this is who God is. He doesn't have no anger. He's slow to anger. Evidently, Moses didn't like this part of God either because he pleads with God. Look at verse 12 again. Why should the Egyptians say, it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountain and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. He pleads with God to be slow to anger. 
And I imagine in his mind, he's like, God, can you do what you did to me when I was coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse why I didn't want to do what you told me to do? Would you be slow to anger with them like you were with me? I have a feeling that some of us don't like that part of God, but I want to ask you another question. Do you, do you really want God not to be angry? Imagine if you're a child and uh, your parents are around you, and, and uh, man, there are some people who are just heaping abuse you know, on you or beating you up or doing something. What do you want your parents to do in that moment? Um, I'm not really, I'm not an angry kind of person, so I'm just, uh, you know, say lovey. I guess you're just getting what's coming to you. I can't really do anything about it. No, you want your parents to step in and get angry in that moment. No, I'm defending my child. That is my job as a parent to protect my child. Of course you want your parent to get angry. You, you want your spouse to get angry. If something is happening to you, you don't want them to passively sit by. Well, so I'm not really a violent, angry kind of person, so I'm just going to sit by and let whatever happen. No. And if you're stuck on a road somewhere and you get jumped by a bunch of people, you want some people to get angry and step in and protect you and help you in that moment. And so we don't really want God not to be angry. What we really want is God to be slow to anger. God, don't be quick-tempered. And in fact, God isn't, because if God was quick to anger, none of us would be here. <laughs> but God is slow to anger. And that's the way we want God to be, slow to anger. But if we could be really honest, and I think we should, because you know, when you gather with other Christians, you really need to be honest. It's not just we want God to be slow to anger. We want God to be slow to anger to me and with us. That's what we want. I want you to be slow to anger with me, God. Be patient with me. Be long-suffering with me. Be slow to anger with me, God, which really lends to the really ultimate truth in this. It's not just be slow to anger with us, but be slow to anger with us, but quick with others. God, be quick with the trigger figure, you know, with anybody else who wrongs me. Get them now, God, right now. Smite them right now. Can you do it right now, God? No, don't, no slow to anger with them. They deserve it. I, I, I don't deserve it because I'm, I'm a loving kind of person. But they, they need, don't, no slow to anger with these. This is our natural human response, isn't it? To just be honest with one another and say, this is what we really want God to be like. Slow to anger with us, but quick to anger with everybody else. Which bodes the question, why is God long-suffering? Which is an interesting word. I'll throw this Hebrew one out because the, the word to slow to anger is literally long of nostril. And, and I love that picture because anger is just that, that just coming out of your nose. You're just so angry. Fire is coming out of your nose. And so slow to anger is literally long of nostril. So it takes a long time for that anger to get out. So why, why is it that God is long-suffering, long of nostrils, slow to anger? Because he wants everyone to repent. He wants everybody to experience who he is. God has a bigger game in mind. The ultimate goal is not God's justice. That will come one day. The ultimate goal that God has is for a relationship with you and a relationship with those who are apart from him. And so God is, is patient. He doesn't want anybody to repent. And this is what Peter uh, wrestles with about Jesus and why he died and rose again. He says this in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. 
God, where are you? Why haven't you intervened in the world? How long must we suffer? How long does this COVID thing have to go on? How much longer in the chaos in the world? Instead, he is patient with you and with everybody else, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. This is the heartbeat of God. I find it interesting as I talk to people, um, you know, why they, you know, either have just walked away from God or what has kept them from coming into a relationship with God. And, and, and most often, it's just other followers of Jesus, just to be honest. And, and often, what I'll hear from people is like, man, I went and I felt like I was condemned. They all looked down on me like what a horrible person I was. And it was the hellfire and brimstone. And you better turn or you're gonna burn. You're gonna repent or you're gonna spend for eternity in hell forever. And, and they just were lambasting me for the way I was living my lifestyle. I wanna have nothing to do with those people. And nowhere does everybody, I've never heard a testimony of saying, you know what? Those Jesus followers were so angry with me and so hatred-filled toward me and, and, and just spoke so dis discouraging words over me that I decided I'd become one of them. <laughs> that is never the story of anybody, but what is the story? It's usually the love and the patience of people. Like, you don't have to have your life cleaned up to have a relationship with God. God, God will work on it. He's patient with you. God wants to know you. That's his ultimate goal. God wants to reveal himself to you and, and give you this gift of eternal life. This is the heartbeat of God. This is why Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter two, he said, don't you understand, it's really the, the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's not the justness of God, it's not the law of God, it's not the guilt of God, it's not the shame and the hellfire and brimstone of God that leads you to repentance, it's the long suffering. It's the long of nostril, it's the slow to anger, it's the kindness of God that leads you to Repentance. Which leads to our last really good question. Does God punish sin then? <laughs> or is he just long-suffering forever? Well, we don't have time to get into that. That's where you're gonna have to come back next week because that's next week's topic. So just encourage you to come back and, and do that. But I don't wanna leave you there. So what I'd like to do is jump over into the New Testament for a moment and take a look at Romans chapter three um, to look at this question. God presented Christ, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement knowing that there was a problem between our behavior and God's perfect standard. And so through the shedding of his blood, Jesus' blood, to be received by faith, it's a gift that we have. We don't earn it or deserve it. God gives us this gift of a relationship with him through Jesus' sacrifice. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And so now what I want to do is jump into Romans uh, chapter 5. And I, I love this section. This one awakened my soul when I was in college, and I just always loved this passage. Look at verse 6. You see, at just the right time, and, and maybe today if you're watching uh, or if you're here this morning, this is your right time. And I pray that God is speaking into your soul today, that you don't miss Jesus in the midst of it. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for not the good people, not the lovey people, not the people who would attend church on a Sunday morning, not the people that give or pray or read their Bibles, for the ungodly. That's who Jesus died for. Yet rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Man, that is the beautiful message of the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. When I was in college, I was in a philosophy class, and it can very quickly, if you ever had philosophy, just right over your head. And there were some of those conversations that were really deep, like, how do you know the chair really exists? Can you prove to me that? I'm like, oh, wow. Have no idea. But there's one conversation in there that I'll, I'll never forget because it was such a fascinating conversation. We talked about eternity. I said, so how do you explain eternity? Because all we know is time. We have yesterday, today, tomorrow. We have watches and we got minutes. We track everything in this realm called time. So how do we understand eternity? And so we began to wrestle with that in this philosophy class of what is eternity then? Well, eternity is timeless, so there's no beginning, no end. And so, well, that means you can't be bored in heaven because there's nothing to compare it to because heaven, in essence, in eternity is a moment. And so it's a moment that just happens forever. And it's hard for us to even grasp what that looks like. But then we began to talk, and this is the piece that really grabbed a hold of my soul. He said, so if that is true, if God is outside and he's eternal, then he sees time differently. We see it literally. God sees it all at one moment, which means that at the very moment we're sinning and disobeying God, Jesus is dying on a cross for you, and that's what he sees. He sees the blood of Jesus paying for your sin. This is how God can be slow to anger and abounding in love because the payment has already been made and God gives that to you as a free gift. Verse nine, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In my study Bible, as I was putting this text together, this was back in December, I had a little note in here in my Bible that uh, said the blood molecule, and then it had some little notes in there, and it had um, Dr. John Kenny's uh, initials next to that. I thought, oh, I remember that. That was a powerful day. And in Bible study, he just got up on the whiteboard and began to draw the blood molecule and explaining everything behind it. I thought, oh, man, I wish I could do that justice. I'm like, wait a minute. We've got Zoom. I can record a Zoom call, and, and he could be with us here. And I asked him, and I did a little Zoom call, and I wanted to just share this with you because I can't do it justice. He's a professor at Concordia University in Irvine, California. He came to faith late in his life after he got his PhD and did all his research. God grabbed a hold of his soul, and he is well-renowned. Um, both in Christian circles, uh, but especially in secular universities. So he speaks all over the place and absolutely brilliant mind. And so I just wanted you to introduce you to Dr. Kenny and just this, let him explain the blood molecule to you. Here we go. This is uh, the, the slide that, and that you, Pastor John, remembered uh, me talking about in Bible study. Uh, here it is. Uh, and on the left... Uh, we see a classic cathedral plan uh, with the parts of the cathedral articulated uh, uh, with short verbal descriptions. But what I want you to see uh, and see clearly here uh, is this, the church plan is that of a cross. Now, moving from that church plan, that cruciform church plan, uh, to the molecular level, uh, to the blood uh, that circulates through our veins and arteries uh, right down to the cellular and subcellular level uh, is a molecule by the name of heme. 
uh, you may have heard uh, the term hemoglobin. Um, but what I want you to see is that this molecule, uh, its core is shaped, is, uh, is a cruciform core uh, where we have both vertical and horizontal symmetries. Uh, a cruciform uh, structure uh, embedded in the, the very blood that gives us life. And the center uh, of this molecule is an iron atom. The symbol is Fe. In the Latin, uh, that would be ferrum. Uh, for us, it's iron. And this molecule, uh, in the shape of the cross at the molecular level, uh, mirrors uh, that on which Jesus was crucified, our cathedrals, uh, and everything. A couple characteristics about this molecule. What it does in the human body is nothing short of amazing. Uh, the iron atom uh, at the center of the molecule uh, actually grabs on to molecular oxygen, uh, the spirit, if you will, uh, and carries uh, the life-giving oxygen uh, throughout the body to each and every cell that needs it uh, for cellular uh, life and activity. So uh, just as Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross with iron nails, uh, and through that saved us and gave us uh, the promise of eternal life, uh, the iron uh, at the center of the heme molecule uh, grabs molecular oxygen, uh, the spirit of life. Uh, so what we see here uh, is from uh, the level of, uh, of the cross uh, defining a medieval church to the level of the heme molecule, we see the cross, uh, we see the iron nails, uh, embodied at the molecular level as an iron uh, atom, uh, attracting the oxygen and carrying it through. I love how God puts things together on such a molecular level that everything gives witness to uh, Jesus, that even the blood uh, gives witness to Jesus and what he does. Let me wrap up by reading these last couple verses in Romans chapter five. For if while we were God's enemies, man, let that, that one sink in for just a moment, that that is, we weren't just apart from God, we were his enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And thank God that our God is slow to anger.